So tonight we look at one of the great pivot points of the Old Testament. All of the scripture is important, even the parts that seem weird and you don't understand. But tonight we're looking at a big moment. A big moment. We could say that there are two big ones before this one. One was the calling of Abraham. Abraham was chosen out from the nations so that God could build from his family a family and a nation that would bless the whole world. That's one big major pivot point. Another major pivot point is when God delivered Israel from Egypt and brought them to Mount Sinai and entered into covenant with them at Mount Sinai and gave them his ten words, his uh, ten commandments to teach them uh, that they could live in the land. That's another one. Tonight, and the passage that we just read and that we're going to look at tonight, is a third great pivot point. In fact, you can see this itinerary in the, in the genealogy in Matthew because it goes from Abraham to Moses to David. Right? It covers these, uh, these major pivot points. So first, just I want to summarize all that goes on in chapters 5 through 8 very quickly. At the beginning, David is anointed for the third time. He is anointed king over all of Israel. And this is a, he, remember, he was anointed first by Samuel the prophet before God. And then he was anointed king over Judah. And finally, he's anointed king over all of Israel. And this is a pattern for the Christian life. We are anointed once in our union with Christ in baptism. But for the rest of our lives, that begins to unfold. That anointing that we share with Jesus unfolds in our lives as we experience suffering before entering into glory. So David is anointed. David captures Jerusalem in a scene that we're not going to look at tonight, but is very interesting. And he makes it, it comes to be called the city of David. It's his capital. And then Hiram, the king of Tyre, uh, brings cedar and wood and materials so that David can build himself a house. It's as if the, the beginning of the promise that the Gentiles would be brought in is happening with Hiram. Hiram is a Gentile, but Hiram sees something about David. He sees something about his kingdom, and he wants to be a part of it. So we see the beginning of the conversion of the Gentiles. Then in a dark note, we see David taking more wives. He adds on a lot more in Jerusalem. And in the list of children that are born to him in Jerusalem is Solomon. Put a bookmark there. The Philistines are encountered again. And in both scenes where David fights the Philistines, David does what he always does. What made him a great commander in the field? He inquired of the Lord. He did different things based on what he heard from God when he inquired of the Lord. So he goes to battle against the Philistines. And in this section of Samuel, the Philistines are defeated and we will hear of them no more. David, the king, wipes them out uh, or they're no longer they're no longer a threat to Israel. And then David decides to bring the ark to Jerusalem. And I wish we had time to go into this tonight, but let me just mention a few things about this. David decides to bring the ark to Jerusalem. Remember, the ark, it's the throne of God. It has the staff of Aaron, which parted the Red Sea to save Israel. It has a copy of the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments. Uh, it has manna that God provided for them in the wilderness. It represents his saving and ruling presence in the midst of his people. And David says... I want to bring the ark to Jerusalem where my capital is so that all of the people of God can come to Jerusalem and worship. So they do, but they don't learn a lesson that they should have learned. If you'll remember when the ark was in the Philistine territory, the Philistines brought it back how? On a cart. And that is not the way God taught Israel to carry the ark of the covenant. The ark of the covenant, again, symbolizes God's presence in their midst. But they imitate the Philistines in their worship. 
and they bring the ark uh, up on this cart. And when they get to the threshing floor, a particular threshing floor, Uzzah puts out his hand to steady the ark, and God strikes him dead. And David says, I don't think I can bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. I'm going to die. But then a very curious thing happens. It says it stays in the house of Obed-Edom, uh, the, the Gittite. Now, the only other people in the Bible called Gittites were from Gath. That includes Goliath. That includes Achish, king of Gath. So Obed-Edom is probably a Gentile. And the Ark of the Covenant is at his house. And Israel says, David, he's being blessed. And so David says, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to bring the Ark back up. And when David brings the Ark, it says that he makes sacrifices every six steps before, as they proceed along. And as they come to Jerusalem, it's that famous scene where David is dancing with wild abandon before God. And when they get to Jerusalem and set the Ark down, it says he sacrifices Uh, Whole burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. This is a worship sequence in the Old Testament. You offer a sacrifice for sin. You offer a sacrifice that brings the worshiper, as it were, into God's presence and ascension. And then you have a fellowship sacrifice, which is a meal shared. And David distributes this great meal. So we can see this as God being enthroned with David in Jerusalem. And it's a great culmination of David's life. And then we get this chapter here, the covenant that God, uh, the Davidic covenant, as it is often called. So let's start at 7-1. Now, when King David lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan, the prophet, see, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So David gets a big idea. He's like, man, all, this great, all these great things have happened. The Philistines are defeated. I have Jerusalem. The Ark of the Covenant is here. I want to do something for God. I'm going to do something for God. God's done a lot for me. I'm going to do something for God. And he sets out on an ambitious building project. And his pastor, Nathan, who appears here for the first time, we're not given any kind of introduction. Nathan just appears and he says, great idea. Let's build God a house. Go for it. Except that night, Nathan has an encounter with God. The word of the Lord comes to him and says, not so fast. Verse 4. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. So this scene where where God speaks to Nathan and then through Nathan to David is the longest speech that God has given since Mount Sinai. That should tell you something. It is a momentous occasion. Something big is going on in this moment. Verse 5, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the, day I, since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. Remember the tabernacle, it's a tent. In all places where I have moved with the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people of Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? God essentially says, David, no, you're not going to build me a house. You're not going to do that. Uh, I don't need one. This reminds me of the Gospels where people come to Jesus to follow him. And he says, the son of man doesn't have anywhere to lay his head. Are you going to follow me? Because I am wandering around just as the tabernacle wandered around in the Old Testament. Verse 8. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, 
Thus says the Lord of hosts. Notice, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Notice the hammer of the nail. I, I, I. God says, I'm the one who called my people. I'm the one who called Abraham. I'm the one who brought you from the sheepfold. It is me who is driving the agenda. It is me who is initiated, not you. God is essentially telling David, my people do not do things for me. I do things for my people and through my people. You don't do things for me. I do things for you and through you. He continues, moreover, the Lord declares to you, That the Lord will make you a house. So notice the the double meaning of house here. David wanted to build a place to put the Ark of the Covenant for the people of God to worship. God says, you're not going to build me a house, but I'm going to build you a house. And that second sense is I'm going to build you a dynasty. I'm going to build a kingdom that comes from you and that will remain forever. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. Who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision. Nathan spoke to David. Again, this is a momentous shift. God made a covenant with Abraham and said, I'm going to raise up a nation from you. At Sinai, God entered into covenant with that nation and gave them his teaching. But here, God attaches himself to one man and this one man's family tree and says, from now on, I'm going to deal with my people through you and your descendant, through the one that will come from you. I am going to put him on the throne. Unlike Saul, who who sinned and I rejected him, I'm not ultimately going to reject the seed of David, the descendant of David, great David's greater son. And so ultimately, the end of this encounter, God tells David, you do not do things for me. I do things for you, and I do things through you in the earth. And that is the order of salvation, isn't it? God does things for us, and then with him we do things. That is the order of salvation by grace. That is justification by faith. You don't do things for God. He does things for us through his son Jesus. And we receive that and revel in it and live our lives out of it and then cooperate with him in what he's doing. I want to look at David's response in the verses that follow. First, it says, and I want, to, I want you to note this progression. The first thing it says is this, verse 18. Then David went in and sat before the Lord. That's the right response. You don't do anything for me. I'm going to build you a house. And David sat down before the Lord. He sat down in rest. He sat down in receptivity. He said, 
I believe what you're telling me. As astounding as it is, I believe what you're telling me. And then he confesses his smallness. He confesses his gratitude because he says this in the next verse. And he said, who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. He acknowledges, God, I'm a nobody. This is incredible what you have done. This is going to be teaching for generations to come that you took me, a nobody, the eighth son. And you made me this king and you gave me this promise. So he sits down before God. He says, I'm a nobody. And then he praises God. Verse 22. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you. And there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people, Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people, Israel, to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. So he finally praises him. And then I want want you to pay attention to the last thing he does. He takes God at his word and he says, God, do what you just said. This is verse 25. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house. And do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying the Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. So he says, I know this is crazy. I know this is bold, but you told me to do it. So I pray what you've said you want to do. This is how David rounds out this scene. So I want to speak about this house that God is building David, that God promised he would build David. Because the house is with us. And I would suggest it's the kingdom of God that Jesus, uh, that Jesus gave to his people, that he invites everyone into. In that kingdom, Jesus has done things for us, not we for him. He made us in the first place. He patiently sustained the human race in its rebellion. He took our nature to himself. He died on a cross, as the scripture says repeatedly, for us. And he was raised up, raised up, and he brought his people into his father's house. But see, there's this perennial temptation that David faced and that we face to think in the mentality of, well, I want to do something for God. I want to do something great for God. Right? In success, David was in success. He said, let's go. Let's, let's really do something big and great for God. Let's do this big building project, whether it's a, a building project of growth of the people or whatever. We fall prey to this idea that we can do something great for God, that there's kind of this quid pro quo relationship with God. And God says, nope, that's not how it goes. I'm building my kingdom. And it is my father's good pleasure to give that kingdom to you and to share it with you. Note, 
This is really important and it's worth looking at. Sometimes I think we have this slippage in our language regarding the kingdom. If you listen to what people say and sometimes in our worship songs, we talk about building the kingdom or advancing the kingdom. I want to read to you the verbs that the Bible most commonly associates with the kingdom. You can enter it. You can receive it. You can seek it. You can proclaim it. But it doesn't say we build it. God builds it. It doesn't say we advance it. He advances it. We are on the passive side of this thing. We're on the cooperating side of this thing. We're not on the side of God. Let's, we're going to do it, build a kingdom for you. It's not ours to build. It's ours to receive. It's ours to proclaim. It's ours to seek. Well, what can we do? We can do exactly what David did. We can sit down. We can sit down before the Lord and rest. The scripture says in Ephesians that God raised us with Jesus and seated us in the Father's presence. As you know, you stand before somebody that you should honor and respect. And God says, no, no, no. Sit down at my son's right hand with my son. So we sit. We receive. We trust. We do what David did. And we sit in the presence of the Lord and say, Lord, as unbelievable as it is, I sit down. I put my hand over my mouth and I believe what you have said. We can admit our smallness and our unworthiness. God, I've sinned. I do not deserve to come into your presence. Who am I that I should be seated with your son in heavenly places, that I should receive the adoption of sonship? We can praise him. We can worship him for what he's done. And then we can boldly pray for the things he told us to pray for. And honestly, the best expression of that is in the Lord's Prayer. In the Lord's Prayer, we say, Our Father, how dare we call God Father? Because Jesus, our Lord, says, You can come into my house. I'm building a house and you can enter into it. And you can call my Father your Father. We say, Hallowed be thy name. God said, I'm going to build a house for my name. And we get to be a part of cooperating with that. When we pray, Hallowed be thy name, he hears. And all the prayers of the Lord's Prayer are this audacious bold thing, but we're bold because he has told us to be bold to do that. Amen? We're bold because he has promised to us that he is building a kingdom and that we can receive that kingdom and that he, we don't do things for him, but he is doing things for us and his son and he is doing things through us in the earth to build his house. Amen? Amen. Why don't we uh, stand up as we come to the Lord's table and